Good morning. Is there an official conference time? Timekeeper? No? Just wondering when we should start. There was a handout over here that some of you may or may not want or have seen. I only brought 40 because I figured not many people would show up for diarrhea. So, so if, uh, if you want to share with somebody you're with, that's fine. So I apologize to those of you who did not receive a handout. If you come to me afterwards, I'll give it to you. I have an electronic version. If you have a little thumb drive with you, I'd be happy to give it to you that way. Um, how many of you here today are students? How many are uh, residents? How many are uh, in practice in, their, in whatever field you practice in? And now how many of you are in nursing? How many of you are in uh, medicine? How many are in other allied health fields? What do you do? Pharmacy. Pharmacy, fantastic. Another pharmacist. Okay, any other fields represented here? Uh, one you don't know, barefoot doctor. Oh, fantastic, medicine. Any surgeons here? Oh, very good. Welcome, welcome. So my name is Mark Topazian. I'm a gastroenterologist, professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, and I'm going to talk today about diarrhea. And my goals are that you would learn how to think about diarrhea in a global context. So a lot of what I'm going to say to you today may not be terribly relevant to your practice where you are in the United States, if you're a nurse or a doctor or a pharmacist, here, but I'm going to present you a more global view of how to think about diarrhea. So, uh, diarrhea is really important. That's the first thing I want you to know. Here's a quote from UNICEF. More than 70% of almost 11 million child deaths every year. Isn't that incredible? 11 million child deaths every year around the world are attributable to six causes, and diarrhea is number one on the list. So, it comes ahead of malaria, comes ahead of AIDS, comes ahead of a lot of things in terms of causing uh, childhood mortality. And so it's a very important topic. And it's so important that I took this picture in Nairobi last week. Uh, this is a big billboard. You don't see this in Louisville, I will bet. Uh, Pledge to defeat diarrhea in Kenya. Text in your name and help save a life. And this is all in honor, you'll see, of Global Handwashing Day. And so people in Kenya take diarrhea seriously because they know they've had kids who've died from diarrhea or they have friends whose kids died from diarrhea. So you see this sort of public health campaign that you might not see back here at home. Now we're going to start with a case, and I want you to vote on what you would do with this infant. And in fact, this whole talk is going to be pretty much about children. I'm going to talk a little bit about adults as we go, but the burden of disease worldwide and of mortality is among children. So a one-year-old girl is brought to clinic with three days of watery brown diarrhea, vomiting, and irritability. On exam, the child is lethargic, afebrile, with sunken eyes and a weak pulse of 140 per minute. Tented skin takes more than two seconds to flatten. Which of the following is the best management plan? 
Check a CBC and stool test for pathogens. Prescribe oral rehydration solution. Prescribe oral antibiotics. Begin IV fluids and hospitalize. Okay, how many vote for A? How many vote for B? How many vote for C? How many vote for D? Okay. So we're going to return to this at the end and see if we get any different sets of votes than that. So uh, here is a classification of diarrhea from the World Gastroenterology Organization. And the WHO has similar uh, material. And it classifies all diarrhea as acute diarrhea, dysentery, or persistent diarrhea. So this is pretty simple. And um, I want you to notice a couple of things about this categorization. It's defined completely in terms of symptoms the patient has. So acute diarrhea, excuse me, acute diarrhea is the presence of three or more loose watery stools in 24 hours. Dysentery is bloody diarrhea with visible blood and mucus present in the stool. Persistent diarrhea is an episode of diarrhea lasting for more than 14 days. That's it. That's the classification of diarrhea. And notice that there's no pathogens mentioned here. There's no lab results mentioned here. This is very simple, and it's all based on the, the first bits of the history you would get from a patient or the patient's mother or caregiver. So we're going to go through those, acute diarrhea, dysentery, and persistent diarrhea, and talk about them. Acute diarrhea is the most common thing that you would see in a developing world setting. And it's usually a self-limited infectious illness. And it's often the case that you don't know exactly what caused it. If there's a prominent vomiting as part of the presentation, maybe it's a little more likely it would be a viral illness. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, and so you might think more in those terms. Uh, if it's an if, uh, ingestion of a preformed toxin, some forms of uh, food poisoning feature a lot of vomiting. If there's really profuse watery diarrhea, you would think about rotavirus, which worldwide is one of the leading causes of diarrhea in infants and mortality in infants. Uh, you might think about cholera, if it was pr profuse watery diarrhea, especially if you were seeing it in adults, in a bunch of adults. And uh, uh, that's an important thing to think about because cholera is going to require you to do a couple of extra things and take some extra precautions, including hand well, you should hand, wash your hands after every patient with diarrhea, but cholera especially, so infectious. Giardia occasionally will present as profuse watery diarrhea. Death in acute diarrhea is almost always due to dehydration and electrolyte shifts. It's not a question of sepsis. It's not a question of... <clears throat> sepsis or, or uh, bleeding. It's a question of dehydration. And those who are at extremes of age and those who are malnourished or immunocompromised are at a special risk for death. So what are your clinical priorities in a tip, usually young patient with acute diarrhea? Well, first you want to look at the stool. And unless you're a gastroenterologist, you probably don't have a lot of interest in looking at the stool. But uh, actually that's quite important. Uh, you want to see, does it look like rice water, which is the classic de description of cholera, but really could be seen in any secretory diarrhea. Is it bloody? If it's bloody, then we have to jump from acute diarrhea to dysentery, different algorithm. Uh, and 
Then you want to assess the patient. Do they have signs of dehydration is the single most important thing about your assessment of that typically infant with diarrhea. Then are they malnourished? And you do want perhaps to have an abdominal exam. Is the abdomen soft? Is is there uh, there, uh, actually peritoneal signs, which would be very unlikely? Lab tests are usually unnecessary, and in the developing world setting, you won't get any lab tests on your typical patient with acute diarrhea. Uh, You might uh, uh, get an O&P exam and some other things for chronic diarrhea, but not for acute diarrhea. If the patient looks really anemic, you might check a hemoglobin, uh, or you might not, depending on the local resources and uh, uh, what you have available and how it's going to affect your treatment. So uh, malnutrition is a major risk factor for diarrhea mortality in the developing world, be it protein energy malnutrition, those little kids with ascites and brittle uh, uh, light hair, or just pure carbohydrate energy deficiency. Either one is a risk factor for, for death from diarrhea. So I already said the most important part of the exam in a, in a, a child or adult with diarrhea is their volume status. And I'm a gastroenterologist, I'm an internist, I'm used to thinking about adults. How many of you here are mainly in pediatrics? Or, ah, so you all could teach me something about this. Uh, But I'll try this morning. So, in adults, we think about tachycardia, we think about postural hypotension, we look at the jugular venous distension, we uh, look at the mucous membranes. This is how, how we tell if you're dry. But in children, especially infants, it's different. You're interested in things like the urine output. And the mom will usually have some sense of whether the child has been urinating normally. Are their eyes or their mouths dry? If they have an fo- open fontanelle, is it sunken or not? This is an important sign. What's their skin turgor like? And are they irritable or lethargic? Are they drinking poorly? That's especially important, of course, because if you're a de- dehydrated infant and you're drinking poorly and you're losing volume from your gut, then you're in trouble. So you can divide uh, in, in uh, infants de- uh, the hydration status into these three categories, no hydration, mild dehydration, or severe dehydration. And uh, it's these kids over here who are going to be especially at risk for death from acute diarrhea. So no, no dehydration, they have normal alertness, their eyes aren't sunken, they're drinking normally, and that says immediate skin pinch. So what that means is a very simple... Uh, a test in clinic of hydration status in an infant now, not necessarily an adult, would be to pinch the skin and let go of it. And how long does it take for that pinch of skin you, you took to flatten out and go away visually? And so the, in, in a non-dehydrated infant, that should just flatten right out immediately. If there's mild dehydration, the child may be restless or irritable, sunken eyes, drinking eagerly, though, but with a slow skin pinch, meaning less than two seconds, It's not immediate, but it takes up to two seconds for that pinch to disappear. And then severe dehydration, abnormally sleepy or lethargic, sunken eyes, drinking poorly or not at all, very slow skin pinch, more than two seconds for that tented fold of skin to disappear. So it's on the basis of these sorts of things that you're going to make a decision, how dehydrated is this child? So then many of you voted for oral rehydration solution, and absolutely this is a key was a key advance in the treatment of diarrhea worldwide. And this is sort of a summary graph of the data about how effective oral rehydration solutions are. Uh, 
on the left-hand axis there is deaths per year worldwide in millions from acute diarrhea, and that's the gray dotted line. And you'll see over the decades that's been dropping rather dramatically from almost 4 million deaths a year down to around 2 million deaths a year. And that at least corresponds in time, it's associated in time with increasing use of oral rehydration therapy to treat acute diarrhea. So the black line shows percentage of cases actually getting oral rehydration solution uh, worldwide for acute diarrhea. So the graph suggests perhaps there's a causal relationship there. And, and one of the frustrations in people, with, uh, people who work in this area is that these lines seem to be plateauing, that you like the, the mortality keep going down and the use of ORS to keep going up, but it hasn't. And there's probably various reasons for that, um, which I'm not going to go into. But our job, when we're in the developing world taking care of diarrhea, is to use oral rehydration solution. Now, there are many different forms of ORS, but the key thing you have to know about ORS is it's got to have sodium in it and it has to have glucose or carbohydrate in it. And there are good, actually, physiologic molecular reasons for that. The, the, the uh, cholera and, and other infections in the small bowel poison one of the pumps on the surface of your enterocytes and you start secreting uh, water and salt into the gut lumen. And there's an alternate pump you can activate that will pump that back into the cell, but it's glucose dependent. So for years, people tried to make an ORS just with electrolytes, and it didn't work. And finally, the uh, lab people said, oh, well, there's this other pump. If you put some glucose in there, maybe it'll work, and indeed it does work. So it has to have salt. It has to have sugar. And uh, then there may be various other things in it. The osmolarity needs to be a little less than the osmolarity of, of, of uh, the blood, of serum. So because the small bowel is an isoosmotic environment, you don't want to overload the gut with, os uh, with osmolality. There's some evidence that a rice-based ORS is superior to a simple glucose-based ORS, uh, but this is a fine point. If you had rice-based ORS available, you would prefer to use that, but packets with glucose and, and uh, salt are fine. Now, in your handout, there's also a recipe for homemade ORS in terms of teaspoons of salt and sugar and how much water to put in. And uh, those of you who don't have handouts, I apologize. But if you want, I'll give it to you electronically after the talk. Yes, you can do that too. And I didn't put my – of course, you don't have a handout, so not having my email address on the handout doesn't help you very much. Yes, yes. So my email is uh, my name, Topazian, all lowercase, T-O-P-A-Z-I-A-N dot mark, M-A-R-K, at mayo, M-A-Y-O, dot E-D-U. Thank you. So there's a recipe in there. If you need to make your own ORS, you could. But almost all of you, if you're going to work in the developing world, will be at some clinic or hospital or facility where they will have packets of ORS that you can use. So the treatment of mild to moderate dehydration in an infant. There's three stages in the treatment of acute diarrhea, the rehydration stage, the replacement of losses phase, and the nutrition phase. So rehydration for mild to moderate uh, dehydration would involve ORS 50 to 100 mLs per kilogram of body weight over three to four hours. So you give that infant or child oral rehydration solution. Now, how do they drink it? Well, they may be able to sip it out of a cup or out of a teaspoon, 
some, for infants, you may need to use a dropper, and you can, the moms will be given a medicine dropper and a cup of ORS and dri- drip the stuff into the infant's mouth. You, can, uh, they, you may use a bottle, like an a, uh, infant or milk bottle for, uh, for an infant. But uh, replenishment with 50 to 100 ml per kilogram. Now, what if the child's vomiting? Okay, you let them throw up some of the ORS, and then you keep giving the ORS. And... Uh, then once you've gotten that in, then you want to replace losses. So for every diarrheal stool or vomiting episode, you give some more ORS to replace what was just lost. And if the child is under 10 kilos, it's 60 to 100 ml of ORS for every stool or vomiting episode. And then nutrition, you want to continue breastfeeding or resume a normal diet after you've gotten that initial rehydration volume into the patient. Now, this is for mild or moderate dehydration. For severe dehydration in an infant, there's a little different. During the rehydration therapy stage of this schema, you're actually going to get parenteral fluids if you can, if you have it available. And you want to rehydrate with either Ringer's lactate or normal saline, 100, um, you should say 100 ml per kilogram, intravenously within four to six hours, and then ORS to maintain hydration until the patient recovers. So, uh, here's this is one wrinkle in acute diarrhea. If the, if the infant is really severely dehydrated, you'd like to give some IV fluids for four to six hours. Then you're going to give ORS for each diarrheal stool or vomiting episode and continue breastfeeding or the, the normal diet. Now, one issue in infants is getting an IV. And uh, uh, I myself have seen infants die in the developing world from di- diarrhea while someone was laboring over them for a long time, trying to find some place to put an IV in this tiny little body. So one thing you need to know about is interosseous needles. How many of you here have ever put an interosseous needle in a patient? Fantastic. So um, this is a key intervention in infants with severe dehydration in the developing world. And uh, this little picture shows how to put it in. You want to go into the tibial plateau, at least a couple finger breaths below the tibial tuberosity. You don't want to hit the growth plate, but you want to feel the needle pop through the uh, outer cortex of the bone. And then you can use that as an IV line for certainly a period of some hours, up to probably a day at least, to, to provide hydration. You probably don't want to leave it there long term. But as an acute intervention to save the child's health, it's very important to know about. Now, um, a couple of other things on this slide about acute diarrhea in children, although we've already covered the main important things. Um, You think about admitting to hospital if the child's malnourished, severely dehydrated, less than a year of age, or has had recent measles, because all these things increase the mortality from acute diarrhea. We already talked about the fluids there. You want to refeed the child as soon as rehydration is accomplished. Many people would advocate giving uh, children with acute diarrhea zinc, 10 to 20 milligrams a day for two weeks. There's good evidence that many of these infants are zinc deficient. And there's some evidence that giving the zinc improves the mortality, although that's become somewhat more controversial in the last year or two than previously. Antibiotics are usually not indicated. You would give antibiotics for dysentery, which we're getting to. That's the bloody stool. Uh, Cholera or enteric fever, another name for enteric fever, typhoid fever. Uh, Giardiasis, if it was more chronic diarrhea. But most infants with acute diarrhea don't need an antibiotic. And you're not going to give an antidiarrheal or an antiemetic. These things can cause more harm than good. 
So really, it's very simple therapy. It's attention to the hydration and uh, to electrolyte replacement. Acute diarrhea in adults, I'm not going to say very much because uh, adults, uh, the, the issues around mortality are not nearly as significant as in infants. But you're going to give oral rehydration solution or IV fluids if they're severely dehydrated, if they're elderly. You might admit an elderly person who is immunocompromised or has other comorbidities if they have severe acute diarrhea. You can, in adults, use bismuth or loperamide cautiously to slow the, 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 the gut a little bit, but it's contraindicated if there is fever or bloody stool. Antibiotics, again, usually not indicated, and you would give antibiotics for some of the same reasons. Okay, I'm going to go on to dysentery unless there are any questions or comments about acute diarrhea. Any of you with interosseous needle experience want to add anything to what I said? Yes. Don't put your hand all the way around. You might go right through into your own hand, you're saying. Oh, my goodness. That's interesting. Now, you're supposed to use kind of a bit of a twisting motion as you push in the needle rather than a plunge straight ahead. And I think that might give you a little more control also. All right, so we're going to talk about dysentery now a little bit. Dysentery is bloody stools. I don't know. Is there a way to turn off just the front row of lights? Probably not. Well, feel free to experiment. So um, you can leave the lights on. That's too dark. Thank you. So uh, blood, this is usually due to an, an enteric bacterial infection with some toxin perform, perform, uh, producing or invasive organism. Shigella, enterohemorrhagic E. coli, other bacteria. And there's often fever with dysentery. So fever, bloody diarrhea. Enteric fever or typhoid fever called by, caused by salmonella typhi can cause a dysentery, but it's not the a common presentation of typhoid fever. Typhoid fever is usually a prolonged illness. There's a couple of weeks of relapsing fever. The patient has prominent headache, uh, rigors. They've had belly pain for a while. They may have localizing signs in the, ilia, in the region of the terminal ileum. And then there are some diarrhea in many patients, but impressive bloody diarrhea, not typically. And I dwell on that because enteric fever is treated with antibiotics and requires antibiotics, whereas most dysentery in adults does not require antibiotics. Amoebiasis can cause dysentery, and one of the hallmarks of amoebiasis in that case is their patient typically does not have fever, uh, unless they also have an amoebic liver abscess, which would be uncommon to see the two together. Then less likely causes of dysentery, especially in the developing world, would be ischemic colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, things that perhaps might be more common in North America. Infectious dysentery is usually a self-limited disease that does not require antibiotic therapy. So who would you give antibiotics to who has bloody diarrhea? Well, antibiotics are recommended for enteric fever. Certainly, if there was amoeba on an ova and parasite exam, you would treat with, with uh, you talk to your pharmacist about what drug do I give for, for amoeba. Uh, often, we, have, we talk about giving antibiotics to people who are at risk of, of getting sick and dying from the dysentery. So those who are at extremes of age, who are immunocompromised or malnourished, well, we might well give an antibiotic to that person, certainly someone who seemed toxic or septic. Um, 
know, though, that in dysentery, antibiotic therapy can have a downside. And especially in infants or children, it can precipitate hemolytic uremic syndrome. What happens is the antibiotic causes lysis of all these toxin-producing bacteria at once in the gut. And then you have this massive delivery of the toxin to the gut from the dead bacteria. And you get this big surge in the blood level of the toxin, and it causes hemolytic uremic syndrome. Especially an issue in children, probably especially an issue in industrialized countries where, where it's almost always reported from. And maybe an issue of giving an antibiotic that works too fast and kills all the bacteria at once. So there's some thought maybe you wouldn't want to give a quinolone and pick something else. But that is not well validated. So what antimicrobials? This is in the handout that you have or I'm happy to email to you. And I'm not going to go over it all here. You're usually going to end up using what's available to you to treat dysentery if you feel you must give an antibiotic. And based on local, what's known about local resistance patterns. And if it's amoeba or giardia, you're going to obviously give a different combination of drugs than if it was an enteric infection. Cholera, you're going to give doxycycline, tetracycline. To adults, children, you're going to avoid those drugs, but give azithromycin, uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, a quinolone, uh, or other agents. If you think you have a cholera outbreak on your hands, what should you do? You should report it, absolutely. What else should you do while you're waiting for someone to call back? <laughs> Isolate. Isolate, absolutely. If you really think you have a cholera outbreak, you need to put all those people somewhere else, not on the regular ward, absolutely. You need, the people who are working with them need to really have barrier precautions so they don't get sick. Hand washing is absolutely key, absolutely. Thank you, that's what I was looking for. All right. Now, that's it for dysentery. So we've done acute diarrhea, three or more watery stools in 24 hours. We've done dysentery, bloody stool with blood and mucus in the stool. Now we're going to talk about persistent diarrhea, which is diarrhea for more than two weeks, a diarrheal episode lasting more than two weeks. So this is, again, an issue in children. Among infants in the developing world, a significant minority, after they have an acute diarrheal episode, it becomes chronic. And it becomes a vicious sort of cycle that leads to death in some of these infants. They become more malnourished. They lose more electrolytes, volume, and, and protein in their stool. They're not very hungry. They eat less. And they end up dying from this chronic diarrheal illness. And this is a poorly understood condition, actually. Uh, we, we need to know more about what happens with these kids and why they get sick. But... We, uh, many people believe that there's an enteropathogenic E. coli species that's often at the root of this chronic diarrhea. And uh, you have to think about HIV if you see such an infant. Acute diarrhea, we're not really thinking HIV. But chronic diarrhea, you know, you might want to, to do a serology on that child. The treatment is largely nutritional. And if you in some settings, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, certain parts of Asia, if you visit a clinic or hospital in, in, one, in an area that sees a lot of this, part of the pediatrics ward is just set up to take care of these infants. And they get a feeding tube, and they get uh, isoosmolar carbohydrate porridge, a certain amount every day, just to get some easily digestible, easily absorbable nutrition into the child. They're given multivitamins and zinc, and they typically are now for this chronic condition given an antibiotic to treat E. coli. And most of them recover and get better and do well. But uh, this, is, uh, this is actually a disease that often needs hospitalization on a ward where, where the people are, are thinking about what to do for these infants. 
persistent diarrhea in adults. We always consider HIV in the developing world especially as a possibility. And there are a number of uh, differential diagnoses, uh, Campylobacter ileitis, uh, which presents with chronic diarrhea, right lower quadrant tenderness, signs of inflammation, might mimic an inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's ileitis. TB enteritis occurs uh, throughout the developing world. And this looks a lot like Crohn's disease of the ileum and the cecum with uh, a chronic inflammatory condition. There, the classic physical exam description is a doughy abdomen, uh, and it's hard to describe to you what that is, uh, but uh, it feels like you're kneading dough. It's a little, there's a little uh, more thickness and resistance when you're palpating the abdomen. Um, and there, if you suspect that, you would look for other signs of TB, a chest X-ray. You might want to know what a PPD shows. You might want to uh, see if there's a node somewhere that you could aspirate or biopsy. Parasites. Uh, certainly you would look for in persistent diarrhea. An ovine parasite exam is very worthwhile in that setting. Uh, uh, if, and if there's wasting or fat in the stool, you would think, is there some malabsorptive condition? There's a disease called um, tropical sprue, which is vanishing and is rarely seen anymore. Uh, but this is a condition of small bowel, a sprue-like condition of the small bowel that is not related to gluten sensitivity, but seems to be related probably to an unidentified infection. It's treated with a long course of oral folate and oral tetracycline. Uh, but you probably will never see this disease overseas. Most caregivers who live and spend their careers overseas in developing settings don't see this disease anymore. Um, chronic pancreatitis in some parts of the world, for instance, southern India, this is common and could be a cause for malabsorption and diarrhea and is diagnosed there by getting a plain film of the abdomen to look for pancreatic calcifications. Okay, so um, I'm going to conclude with two slides here. First, lab tests. I've already said you usually don't need any lab tests to treat diarrhea in the developing world, and I'll repeat that. But if you were going to get any lab tests, what would you do? Well, stool for ova and parasites might be useful in persistent chronic diarrhea, maybe, maybe in severe diarrhea in some adults looking for a giardia. Fecal leukocytes suggest colitis and an invasive organism inflaming the colon, but you don't need to check for this. It's not going to change what you do in patients in the developing world. CBC will not alter your acute treatment unless there are signs of severe anemia. Uh, and you are in a place where you can actually give a blood transfusion. Stool culture is usually not available or required to treat diarrhea in the developing world. A stool sudansane for fecal fat could be a useful test in some adults with chronic diarrhea and weight loss to look for malabsorption of fat. X-ray if concerned for toxic megacolon or, or, uh, or chronic pancreatitis, but really you usually don't need any tests. So now I'm going to come back to the case. We're going to end by taking a vote on the case again. One-year-old girl is brought to clinic with three days of watery brown diarrhea, vomiting, and irritability. On exam, the child is lethargic, afebrile, with sunken eyes and a weak pulse of 140 per minute. She has tented skin that takes more than two seconds to flatten. Which of the following is the best management plan? Well, none of you voted for A to begin with, so good work. I think you all could have given this talk, actually. But uh, that's right. We don't really need to check any lab tests in this infant. B, prescribe oral rehydration solution. Well, this is actually a distractor in this question, and the reason is this infant is severely dehydrated, and she's only a year old. So she's lethargic. 
She's, she's got sunken eyes and a weak pulse, and she's got that skin pinch that takes more than two seconds to flatten. So she fits the definition of severe dehydration. So if we could, we would give her IV fluids, if you're in a place where you can do that, maybe with an interosseous needle if we had to, and hospitalize her and just get her hydrated up again and then start the ORS and continue breastfeeding. And we would not give oral antibiotics because it's really typically unnecessary in acute diarrhea. Okay, questions or comments from the audience? Sir. To the places that we go, very often people don't have bathrooms or toilets. They don't know the quality of the diarrhea. Hmm. In that case, it makes it a little bit harder to use your scheme that you've placed here. You know, because they don't know if it's bloody or non-bloody. Uh, in those cases, then you would go with, like, are they febrile, are they non-febrile? Hmm. I think this is a good point. The, however, I think that people usually do know. A mother, an infant, is usually not put, taking her t- child to the toilet or out to the outhouse or somewhere. Usually the child's uh, eliminating into a rag or a piece of clothing or cloth of some sort. So the mother can usually show you the stool in an infant. And even in an adult, if they're cleaning themselves at all, they'll have some sense of if there's blood. Sometimes. Sometimes they'll say, no, I absolutely don't know. My own patients tell me that in Rochester, Minnesota, about their stools. I never look at the toilet, though that was, you know. So you're right. It's a limitation. Um, and, uh, um, but I think in infants and children and small children especially, you're usually going to be able to look at some stool. The mom, and if not, if they have diarrhea, just let them wait a few minutes, and then you'll be able to look at some stool. Um, yes? What are your thoughts on Uh, I don't know any data on the question is what about probiotics? I don't know any data on that, um, and it's a fascinating question actually. Right now, the, the probiotic is a so-called good bacterium. So if the idea is to give uh, someone a, a Lactobacillus or Saccharomyces or one of a variety of other good bacteria and and repopulate the gut with healthy healthy flora. And there's uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm for this right now. There's not a huge amount of data to support the use of probiotics in almost any setting, uh, unfortunately. There's some evidence that in some, for instance, in irritable bowel syndrome, it may have a little helpfulness, and some people it may really be the thing. Um, there's some little hint of evidence in some uh, inflammatory diseases of the bowel. Uh, so it's a fascinating question. Um, for acute diarrhea in infants, I know of no data that would help me, and I'd be a little pessimistic that it would be make the critical difference because the probiotic thought is to really repopulate the gut with healthy bacteria, change the milieu in the, in the gut lumen, and maybe over the long term improve the gut's function and decrease inflammation. For a child that's dying of dehydration and electrolyte imbalances today, it's probably not going to make a big difference. Uh, for some patients with chronic Diarrhea, it might. You know, you would want to know sort of what is, what's the cause. Do you have a different thought about it? Uh, I, was, I was looking at some studies that they had done in South Africa probiotic use and HIV patients. They found that it can lessen the recurrence of diarrhea. So that I could well believe, and that could be quite helpful uh, in, in the, sort of an adult with chronic diarrhea who's immunocompromised and getting repeated infections. Yeah. No. Uh, 
Uh, perhaps. Uh, perhaps. But thank you for your comment. It's, it's very good. Other questions or comments? Well, absolutely. So great point about latrines and that, that they have to be separated in space from the water source. Absolutely. And that sounds like a whole other seminar to me on where to put your latrine. Um, and uh, that your comment that it's actually getting worse, that there's less and less use of adequate latrines. And another interesting comment that being in an urban setting may not solve the problem, maybe even more of an acute issue in an urban setting in the developing world. So thank you. It brings me back again to hand washing. You know, I think hand washing is something that I, at my age, it took me a long time to learn how to wash hands. My institution had to really work on me to get me to wash my hands as, as, without any thought between patients. And, uh, um, but in, in the setting of caring for diarrhea, that's absolutely key so that you don't at least become part of the problem passing on the infection to your next patient. And... Uh, when, um, you know, setting up a sustainable method for hand washing wherever you are is, is a whole other challenge. Other comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Do you have an opinion on the apparently ubiquitous practice of our tribal clinics of giving out Cipro prescriptions to everyone who goes on international trips? So the question is about travel medicine now and travelers' diarrhea and uh, the ubiquitous use of Cipro, or it might sometimes be azithromycin or other agents. So uh, there is a good evidence that a course of oral antibiotics shortens the duration of traveler's diarrhea by about a day on average, if it's begun promptly when the symptoms begin. So uh, that, in fact, has been very well studied in, uh, out of proportion to the burden of disease uh, worldwide. Uh, and so we do know that that's true. And so it's not a huge difference in, in, in outcomes, but there is a measurable difference. So, so um, uh, I guess that would be my comment. Uh, I know a lot of Cipro pills get brought home and ultimately flushed down the toilet or unused when they've expired. And I think that a lot of traveler's diarrhea probably doesn't really require any therapy if it's mild, you know, and it's not really slowing you down. Um, but so that's that's my comment. What's your comment? I have a lot of problems with short-term teens wanting to take it prophylactically. Oh my goodness! Kind of like, no, 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 no. And um, so I, I just don't think that there's a lot of good instructions on interesting. Interesting. Well, thank you for that comment. Absolutely, it makes no sense to take it prophylactically. In fact, you'll do the more harm than good, probably. And. The, the issue of when to start, if, you, if you're going to get the benefit, you really have to start it within the first day of diarrhea. Um, so if you feel you need the benefit. 
So, other questions? Yes. I don't know how to go in more into that, and someone else here may have more insight into that. But um, I can guess at it. But I don't. Does anyone here have information about why the use of ORS has plateaued? I mean, often these outbreaks are happening in settings where there aren't formal clinics and things aren't set up properly. If it's happening in a war situation, if it's happening, if there's people on the move, refugees moving, there may not be any way to provide therapy. And, of course, those are the settings when outbreaks tend to happen. Uh, so that would be one guess I would have. Um, it, there's also a lot of traditional medicine all around the world that doesn't feature ORS in its armamentarium. So uh, these are my guesses about some reasons. But it's a great question, and I don't have the answers. Yes. Great question. So the question is, you know, in the U.S., if you have a C. difficile patient, you're going to wash your hands with soap and water, not use the, the alcohol-based hand sanitizer. What about these pathogens? Um, the commonest pathogen you're going to see in infants is rotavirus, and rotavirus should be quite sensitive to the alcohol solution. Um, and the, the pathogen that certainly you would worry especially about at the other end of the spectrum that I would worry about is TB, which uh, may well not be killed if it's in a spore form by that little hand uh, ritual with the alcohol. So um, in between, I think most bacteria you're going to be okay, um, but it's the sporulated organisms, which C. diff does. It goes into spores. Uh, TB certainly would be somewhat resistant. You know, C. diff is not reported as a big problem in the developing world. And maybe, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just not recognized. But my hunch is that people are in such a relatively dirty environment that getting exposed to alternate bacteria to, to recolonize the gut is not a huge problem. It gets back to your, to your question. So, uh, and probiotics, sort of the original use of probiotics was to prevent recurrence of C. difficile infection, where it's quite effective. So... So I'm not really answering your question. But I think for the common things, I think the alcohol will be fine. Other questions? Yes. How would a pregnant woman – I missed it. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. No, that's true. So um, tetracycline and doxycycline was more for, uh, for um, cholera and uh, is not really the sort of the first-line drug for dysentery if you're going to give an antimicrobial. That's okay. So uh, for Shigella, which is sort of Shiga toxin is the name for the toxin that the, not only Shigella organisms but many other enteric organisms produce that causes diarrhea uh, and dysentery. So for that, adults, it would typically be a quinolone or azithromycin or if they're really sick and in the hospital, ceftriaxone. Uh, and now I'd have to – I don't know that you want to give Cipro to a pregnant woman either. We have some pharmacists here. They might know. I'm sorry, sir? Azithromycin would be the choice. Thank you. Thank you. Would you want to avoid quinolones in a pregnant woman? Yeah. And uh, how about the cephalosporins? They're safe also. Yeah, so you'd end up being – you'd be using a, uh, some other drug. Okay. 
Other questions? Comments? Well, thank you all for coming. It was really great you were here. And if you want a handout, let me know. Hi. Yeah. Do you have a thumbs up?